Harder to breathe. I am Carl. I am a, a addict alcoholic, among other things. My sobriety date is August 22nd, 2014. I'm Chelsea. I'm an alcoholic, and my sobriety date is February 19th, 2015. Hi, I'm Ryan. I'm an alcoholic, and my sobriety date is May 29th, 2016. This is SoberPod. SoberPod is the podcast about recovery that doesn't sound like a podcast about recovery. We are not experts or professionals, just a varying number of deeply flawed individuals with good intentions. If you would like to hear about the 12 steps, check out season two of 2019 for our years long coverage of 50 plus episodes. And it goes without saying, we do not speak for any recovery groups or organizations. And as always, we encourage you to listen in moderation. Hello, party people, ex-party people. Sorry. I mean, maybe I mean, maybe you're still partying. I don't know. Maybe you woke up today and you have a nice hangover. Good for you. Hey, um, uh, we have a, a special guest here today. I know we said last time that Chelsea and I would be back and we would be talking about living sober again, but um, but we're not doing that. Actually, we lied. Uh, actually, you know, uh, we 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 had the opportunity, uh, and actually, just um, you know, our pleasure to uh. Uh, to meet with Ryan and Ryan, can you um, can you can you just give us a brief like rundown? I mean, are you going to have to say your last name? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You're also going to have to, you know, uh, I guess tell us a little bit about why you're here. So I'm just going to put you on the spot. <laughs> well, thank you, Carl and Chelsea, for having me on. Uh, it's Ryan Dusick is the pronunciation. D U S I C K. Uh, I'm here because I've. Uh, I've been sober for over six years now. Uh, the process of recovery has been absolutely uh, one of the most meaningful and inspiring things in my life. And that includes being a founding member of Maroon 5, who had a lot of success, platinum records and Grammy Awards and all that stuff. But here I am uh, in recovery. I've become a therapist, um, working with clients uh, with their mental health. and being of service in a way that feels very pur purposeful and meaningful. And I've written a book called Harder to Breathe that is a memoir of my life, going back to the mental health issues that I've dealt with uh, since I was a teenager, up through my time in the band, and then the years of addiction, alcoholism that I suffered through before I found this new chapter of my life in recovery that has been uh, a real blessing. So I'm just, you know, talking about my story, trying to be of service to others. I, you know, and, and it, would it be, cause I'm going to get all real. So you're probably going to hate me and I may offend you at some point, but you could totally just tell me like, fuck off Carl. But, uh, I, um, I, I find, I don't even find your story with Maroon 5 that much more interesting as I think your journey in recovery is way more interesting to me. And I know, so I, I'm sorry, but it's, I mean, it's, it's the truth. So, so you're, you were a founding member, drummer in Maroon 5 and I, you know, I started reading the book, you know, I got through, I got the pre- pre uh copy right so uh which by the way for all you uh ex-party people the book comes out november of this year so uh one more month to go uh hey where is it at in this process are you are you you're like finalized right like you have like they're sending you like book jackets to like put in dummy books at this point right like i, or, I actually just received yesterday the box with uh my copies of the actual book ooh. so it's uh it's printed 
it's ready for release November 15th and it's available for pre-order. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. That's really exciting. So, um, so, you know, I, I dug in and I, you know, I was reading a lot, you know, a lot about, uh, you know, your, your early days, you know, hooking up, uh, I don't even know how old you were, like, like whatever it was like 12, 13 years old or whatever. So, um, and, and, and it was all, and it's all good and it's great. And it really is like the story of like, you know, how you got to where you were. But I really enjoy the um, I really enjoy the the finality of it. Actually, I, I enjoy I enjoy the story arc of where you are today. And that seems to me like, um, you know, because it touches really close to home for me. It's like something that like, uh, you know, I look forward to helping others. It's something that I really enjoy. That's why we're doing this podcast. Basically, the idea of this podcast was, uh, um, you know, to. Uh, to, to reach back in time a little bit to talk to my 25 year old self who like picked up that drink and he probably shouldn't have. And, um, and then also to help a buddy, you know, cause I was trying to help a buddy, like, you know, find some accountability and stay sober. And that's how I thought this would be a good idea to do that with him. And it turns out like it just has, it has brought me into a whole nother journey as well. So, um, so what I would like to do though, if we can quickly, cause that was your words, but now here's the, here's the about, uh, you know, Ryan from the book, can I, I just pulled out a few paragraphs that I'd like to read if that's okay, so that we can get people more uh, acquainted with you. So currently, Ryan Dusick is an associate marriage and family therapist, the founding drummer of the world's most popular band, Maroon 5, a mental health advocate, and an author. His life has been long and winding, has been a long and winding road from aspiring pop star with anxiety to heartbroken alcoholic to thriving mental health survivor and messenger of hope in recovery. That sounds pretty big, Ryan. <laughs> <I just Yeah. laughs> sounds like a lot of responsibility when you read it out loud like that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's great. You know? and, so, and then I skipped down, the, down you know, uh, a little bit and just pulled out a, a few other things, which is, uh, it says, while earning his master's degree in clinical psychology at Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Education and Psychology, he decided it was time to write his story in hopes of helping others who might see themselves in his personal struggles. Now working as a mental health professional at the Missing Peace Center for Anxiety in Agora Hills, California, uh, and beginning his new journey as an author and advocate, Ryan is spreading the message that recovery is possible and some astounding things can come with it. And I just, you know, I mean, talk about a message of hope. And that's kind of what I really hope to get at here um, is that, uh, you know, you seem to have i mean you did the like i say what a you know amazing arc of a journey but you did the mega arc of that journey you know the rest of us we have like a little smaller arc right um so i i'd like to know like you talk about um you know growing up you know like the rest of us like we you know i think a lot of us you know have anxiety we had a certain amount of anxiety we have a certain amount of you know fear that we run with and just in our daily lives hell just even in just even getting in high school, college, et cetera, getting our first jobs, et cetera. You know, all that stuff comes with a certain amount of anxiety. But you talk about something a little bit more than that. Could you touch on some of those things? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I didn't even really have a word for it when I was a kid. You know, anxiety was not a phrase, a word that I used to describe the way that I felt. As alcoholics, we talk a lot about we always felt different in some way, right? Mm -hmm. And I... I wasn't an alcoholic until later in life, but looking back now, that's really kind of what it was. I felt like, does everyone feel this way? I just felt kind of detached from my surroundings. Um, I would often feel like 
I, I would have like a lump in my throat and feel lightheaded. Uh, not quite to the level of having a panic attack at that age, um, but just feeling very self-conscious, very uh, inside of my body in a way that I wondered if other people did. Mm -hmm. uh, I looked around, everyone seemed to be laughing and having a great time at school. And I just felt very um, internal in my experience of the world, uh, except for when I was with the band. You know, that was the one space that felt like I was outside of myself and really present and connected to other people. Um, so that was kind of like, a, I look at it now as a, a spiritual connection yeah, yeah. Uh, as a teenager and something that gave me a feeling of, uh, of purpose. Yeah, you, you talk about two things which I totally identify with, which is, uh, except in different ways, because you talk about uh, being a pitcher, you talk about being a drummer, right? Yeah. And, um, and to me, it's like, that's where you found your flow. Like, that's where you found, you know, it's like your thing, right? So, um, you know, and like for me, it was, you know, it was art, right? Like, you know, uh, graphic design and creative space and that kind of stuff. And so whether it be like, you know, drawing, painting, I mean, anything like visual art, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I find my flow. Like, that's where I lose time. Like, that's where things don't exist outside of that moment. And I really love that. So, so talk to me about, um, like pitching, I think was a big thing. You had, a, you had a big letdown in terms of your pitching and it was very similar by the way, to your letdown in, in drumming a little bit. Was it not? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's why I put it in the book, even though I'm sure no one really cares about my pitching career at age 12. <laughs> I cared. I cared, right? I tell you, I, I, well, I did. Good. I'm glad you saw the connection because it is meaningful for me. Um, yeah. You know, baseball was my first love. I was inspired to be a Dodger someday growing up in LA and watching the 88 World Series. And uh, I was a really good pitcher when I was 12. And that was the one place that on the mound at that age, I felt totally comfortable in my skin. I was a shy kid, but for some reason when I was pitching, I felt like I was in total control of the ball. I was in total control of the hitter and I was just going to strike everyone out. And I had just supreme confidence. I don't know where I got that from at that age. Cause otherwise, like I said, I was a shy kid. I didn't really have that kind of confidence. Um, but that was everything to me. I felt I could, you know, I, they had to pry the ball from my hand because I just wanted to be out there pitching every day. Um, unfortunately in high school, uh, I had injuries, ended up with chronic tendonitis in my pitching shoulder. Mm. And that was just so frustrating. The thing that was my biggest passion, the place where I felt, um, the most confident, all of a sudden I was losing confidence. I didn't have the kind of control that I once had. Um, and it just became more and more frustrating and sort of demoralizing feeling like the thing that I felt I was really good at was being slowly taken away from me. Um, so I ended up retiring from my baseball career at the ripe old age of 15, uh, just as I was pitching for the varsity team. But I just like, I kept coming back from injury and it would keep coming back and it just wasn't really working out and it wasn't fun anymore. Strangely enough, that's around the same time that I started playing music more seriously. I was playing in bands, uh, the school band and my older, older brother's band, which we played, you know, on the Sunset Strip and everything at that age. And um, weirdly enough, my shoulder injury from pitching didn't seem to really bother me when I played the drums, even though I was playing really hard and really fast hard rock at the time. Uh, this is the early 90s and you can see my Nirvana shirt, so you can imagine. Uh, but it just kind of segued right away from baseball right into music, and I just shifted completely, and that became my my place. That became uh, my zen 
you know, focus to be behind the drums and pounding it out. Hmm. So now com compare and contrast, I guess, that to your to your drummer deal. Like, so then what happened with, uh, uh, you know, um, and I know I don't even know if it's hard to talk about. Honestly, is it hard to talk about that stuff? Because I know it would be for me. Like, you know, if you told me like, hey, Carl, like, you know, we've, we've lopped off all your fingers and now you got to draw with your feet. Like I, I would I would be devastated. And, you know, and, and if I stepped away from it and, you know, crawled into a bottle, you know, uh, I, you know, and, you know, it would be hard coming back to be talking about. It. So I, I, you have a lot of courage, actually, to be sitting here like kind of and to have gone through all that stuff. Just and now to again, facing it, turning it around and turning like, you know, what we talk about in recovery, which is like turning your, your, your greatest you know deficit into your greatest asset. Right. It's like. How does, I mean, are you okay with talking about that stuff in this way? Or, you know, uh, please, I mean, I, if you are, elaborate on that, because I would love to know more about, like, what happened with the with the injury in terms of your drumming and then how that impacted you more on the inside, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we know the outside story, right? What about the inside story? <laughs> well, first off, yes, I, it is hard to talk about, but I also, at this point, really enjoy talking about it for a couple of reasons. One is because... I couldn't talk about it for like a decade. And that was why I was drinking so much, you know, just to escape how difficult those feelings were. Um, and in recovery early on, I started telling my story, even though I didn't really have any real understanding yet of recovery, just a few months in, I would go into a meeting and I would just pour it all out there. Um, and I would be an emotional wreck and I would feel very triggered. Um, but I would find that afterwards it was like a cathartic release having these people that understood the pain that I went through. Maybe they hadn't gone through the same thing that I had in terms of the level of success and losing all that. But uh, but they had suffered through the same kind of uh, spiritual and emotional pain. Uh, and so telling the story over and over and over again, as I have at this point now, first in meetings, uh, then as a volunteer at a recovery center, uh, now as a therapist and as an advocate and with this book, I find that each time I tell it, I be, I feel more empowered. The story becomes more meaningful for me. It has purpose in it now. And that's, you know, why I wrote this book when I did is because I feel like it, there's a happy ending to it. <laughs> there's, there's hope in the story. So in telling the story, even though I go back to some really dark places and it's, and writing the book was painful in that way to really go into it and to be really vulnerable talking about it. Um, but I know that it's serving a purpose for me therapeutically uh, in terms of the closure that I've achieved in talking about it and writing about it, but also in offering that to other people and hopefully inspiring people to work through the same kind of issues. So that's uh, the first half of the answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the second half, uh, you know, in terms of the breakdown that I that I had and it's parallel to uh, the baseball, obviously it played out on a much larger scale with the drums and with music and with Maroon 5. Uh, you know, I was in that band for over a decade. Yeah. yeah. And we started the band when I was 16 years old. And we really went from playing in my parents' garage. That was our first rehearsal space, you know, and we were a grunge band. 1994 is when we started the band. <laughs> All the way to 2006 when I left the band uh, being, you know, global rock stars pop stars in maroon five and so you can imagine everything along that journey the brotherhood the connection between mm -hmm. us the the trying and failing 
we had a record deal that we thought was going to be the thing in 97 record came out and flopped uh it wasn't until 2003 4 that we had success as maroon 5 um and just as we were sort of reaching the mountaintop is when things started really breaking down for me and it started with the same thing the shoulder injury from pitching coming back pain in the shoulder um looking back on it now i understand better in a way that i didn't at the time that there was a mental health crisis going on at the same time mm-hmm. um it was you know you, the lifestyle of a touring musician is challenging to begin with but we were really doing it sort of the old-fashioned way of building a grassroots following and it took it was a four-year album cycle from 2002 to six where we literally didn't take breaks. I mean, it was like one tour after another, and each one was just a gradual increase in size. Um, and we went from playing clubs all the way up to playing arenas all over the world. And the, my, I think my constitution was not really built for that level of uh, strain, travel, lack of sleep, exhaustion, uh, pressure. I already was somebody who put a lot of pressure on myself, perfectionistic, uh, sort of obsessive compulsive and the anxiety that I experienced was not at the time stage fright I never really looked at it as stage fright it was more just my adrenaline was pumping 24 7 thinking about the next show and thinking about the next you know uh, tv appearance or photo shoot or whatever we were constantly doing stuff to promote the record uh, that I just wore down over time it wasn't something that happened mm-hmm. like one day I had pain and then I had like stiffness and my body was just kind of contorting up and playing through it. My mechanics were starting to change because I was just trying to find ways to get through sets. And over a matter of a few years, it it, it went from pain to coordination issues that were just totally confounding. We're playing simple things that I'd done a million times um, were becoming more and more difficult. And it's only in retrospect that I look at it as kind of my body telling me like you're killing yourself. And you need to stop. Mm-hmm. There was no way for me to say that verbally because we were in the middle of this global campaign for world dominance. And I was just one of five guys. <laughs> you know? So it wasn't until I literally just couldn't hold the sticks anymore that I finally could stop playing. And as much as I you know, m- mentally obviously wanted to keep going and wanted to power through, it just wasn't going to work. So did you... Uh did you have to like cut it off um like mid tour and and uh say sorry guys i just can't i can't lift the sticks anymore or were you able to power through until there was like a break point uh i wish that i had had the kind of maturity that you're describing to say hey guys you know i need a break <laughs> i wish we all had the maturity <laughs> <to describe. laughs> and i think that maybe the world has changed in the last 20 years in terms of if somebody did say that people might have a little bit more compassion and understanding that in the long run it might be helpful for somebody to take a break and work on their health and their and their mental health uh, at that point it wasn't really an option for me and so yes i did power through to the extent that I was able to, and it did work for a time, right? Uh, I got through our first real headlining tour. Uh, I I went home for a week in the middle of it because I had so much pain in my shoulder that I needed to go see an orthopedist. They gave me a shot of cortisone. Actually, I had two different shots of cortisone in my shoulder. Inside, I knew that wasn't going to do anything because I felt it, it. what was going on was more to my core than just my shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I came back and I powered through and I played another tour and another tour and just contorted my body in ways to try to get through it. And uh, the guys could tell that that my playing was suffering. Um, I knew that the concern was rising, that that the quality of the performance was going down and that there was just a matter of time before it really got bad. And so there was this sense of impending doom the whole time, which I look back at now and it, it has to have been traumatizing to me, you know, just yeah, yeah. constant feeling of um, the sky is falling, you know? So, yeah. And the confrontation too with your bandmates, like that to me is like, so after a long-term relationship with people and then to have to, like, I, I so I read the part where like, I don't even know what it was, like chapter four maybe where, uh, they're like, you're all, you know, sitting around the table and they're like, you know, it's kind of over, right? And I am just like, oh, that's it's just palpable to a certain degree. And you're kind of like, and I'm like, I'm like, no, Ryan, no, <laughs> you know, but, but at the same rate, you know, um, you know, I, I read the table of contents, right. You know, um, and so, um, so I see the, the hope in just the table of contents, right. So I, I know that it gets better. So that's kind of where I'm after. And, and I think that people like think like, you know, if the way that we're talking, you know, we're saying, they're saying like, Hey, you know, it gets better. And people are like, what the hell are you talking about? This dude is a you know, <laughs> fucking drummer in Maroon 5 and he's making money, man. He's doing going on tours. He's living the life, right? And we're like, no, no, it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think that that's really strange for some people to understand, especially if they haven't lived the internal life that you're talking about, right? Which is the you know, the, the way in which we feel like you've, like you said, like you never fit in as a child, you never felt like you were, you know, part of, right. You always felt, you know, absent from it. And I think a lot of us feel that way. There's like a hole in our soul and there's like no way to fill it. And then, you know, and then when something like that happens, that, that traumatic, traumatic, you know, stuff happens, it's harder to deal with. And you, you end up retreating even more into your soul. And it's like, and it's already an empty space. <laughs> so, you know, so there's no way to like really get out of it. And I, what I hear is you starting to move towards what I felt like I did, which was I got real cyclical about my, um, my, my using my feeling, you know, uh, you know, and then, you know, the, the Monday mornings, right. And then, you know, the regret, the drinking, the feeling that, you know what I mean? It's like, and I, it just, so it just kept going round and round and down and down. And that's, how I ended up. Did you like, I love, uh, uh, that you're one of the few people that gets to say, you know, I took my last drink in a Betty Ford parking lot, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, cause there's not many people that take their last drink in the Betty Ford parking lot. So can you, can you talk to me about like what led up to that moment? I just, you know, in general, yeah. And something you touched on, you know, it, it gets better. And that whole thing, that was even for me, kind of a, a, a mind F, uh, because I, I look back when in my drinking years, I look back on what I had, I had already done. And it was like, how is anything ever going to live up to that? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I felt like I didn't, I, it was really hard for me to find gratitude, you know, because I felt all I felt was what I had lost not what I had and everything I had to be. And I felt like I was really ungrateful because here I was like this extremely privileged guy that the world, the universe had handed so much. And here I am wallowing in my own despair. And that was driving my drinking because I was like, I didn't feel worthy of it. I, I felt like, you know, I'm really just trying to get through the rest of my life. I've already lived the best part of it and lost it. 
Mm. You know, mm. so that was a big factor in terms of the drinking and and just trying to escape and trying to like assume this alter ego that was just rock star who could just enjoy yeah. you know the fruits of our our labor even though I wasn't playing the drums anymore. Yeah, and yeah. I'm not gonna work. It was just. Yeah. So I went, you know, I, I chased that dragon for a decade, you know, and it was the, exactly what you're describing of like, oh, I've got it under control now and I can have a little fun and have my drink. And then, of course, it returns to the same pattern of going on a bender for three days or a week or whatever. And then just being absolutely wrecked physically, mentally, psychologically, spiritually, finding myself in a hole again. And and just like, what is wrong with me? Why can't I get my s together i don't know if you're allowed to curse no, you, yeah if you haven't heard me oh, yes. Fuck yes. <laughs> I, I got, okay. we get we get reprimanded on a on a on a weekly for my amount of cussing it's kind of sad actually <laughs> okay <laughs> well i'll stop censoring myself i'm then. trying to cut back actually. <laughs> so yeah to answer your question it was it was really just you know each time i went through that cycle it got worse and worse and i had some really demoralizing moments where I would, I was kind of a binge drinker, you know, where I'd go through these benders and then I'd sober myself up because I was like getting my shit together, you know, and that worked until it didn't work anymore, you know, where at a certain point the withdrawals were so bad that I couldn't get through them anymore. And I would end up drinking, um, even when I hadn't intended to and end up, I just was like totally agoraphobic, uh, totally disconnected from life, really at a spiritual bottom. And it took some really humbling things at that time in my life to, thankfully, it wasn't the kind of bottom that a lot of people experience in terms of just, you know, ending up on the street or in jail or those kinds of things. Um, so I'm very fortunate and very grateful for that. Um, but at, the, at that lowest point of my life, um, thankfully, I had a few people that were there for me to point me in the right direction. I had a therapist that I'd been kind of going to and, you know, dipping my toes in the water of recovery, but not really... <laughs> not ready to commit to it, mm -hmm. but he was somebody that had gotten sober at midlife and gone back to school and become a therapist and counselor. And he was trying to work, help me work through it until finally I hit that bottom. And he was the one who recommended I go to the Betty Ford center. He thought that would be a good place for me. And I had, uh, they didn't have a bed for me for, for 48 hours. And I was in the middle of a bender and my girlfriend who was going to drive me out there, she's like, okay, well, we've got 48 hours. All I ask is just don't drink hard liquor. <laughs> so, so what did I do? I got, <laughs> I got myself a case of wine <laughs> and drank it all in, uh, in those 48 hours and showed up at the Betty Ford Center with a thermos, you know, drinking it in the, in the parking lot. And, you know, I had like a 0.39 blood alcohol when they brought me in. And from wine. From wine. Holy yeah. shit. From wine. You had to piss like a Russian racehorse. <laughs> <laughs> I, re I remember walking to the front door and I remember them doing the intake. Apparently, at some point, I was just rambling and like singing Adele songs. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> this was right when her big album had just come out. So uh, they put me in a bed. I passed out and I woke up. And I had like no idea where I was. And nice. I was terrified, you know, waking up in the detox wing of the Betty Ford Center. And, you know, that was the start of my journey of recovery, sweating and shaking and, uh, you know, just kind of facing the reality of here I am. All of my best efforts to control this thing got me here. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But it was within like a week after I'd got through the initial withdrawals that I started feeling something i hadn't in a really long time 
which was connection. Mm-hmm. Feeling connected to the people around me that were going through a similar experience as me. And feeling, even within a week, feeling that I could be of service because there were guys that were coming in that were suffering even more than me, mm-hmm. shaking like a leaf and needed me to help them to the room and acclimate them to the process. And I, it was just like, wow, I have some meaning in this moment in my life after not feeling that for probably a decade. Mm-hmm. And that was a powerful, powerful feeling that drove me forward in terms of the inspiration and the motivation to change, to stay sober. Uh, And then eventually to not just to stay sober, but to grow Mm -hmm. and to do new things and discover new sides of myself that I didn't even know existed. And I've just kind of followed, put one foot in front of the other each step of the way Something has arisen that's like, that's my path forward. Let me take my step into that space. And that's just what I've been doing every day ever since. Yeah, Some people attribute this stuff to like, AA, you know, it's like, uh, um, you know, like they say, oh, you know, I'm living God's will, right? Like, so what you, when you say that stuff, that's kind of what I hear, right? You know, it's like, you, you know, there's a, and I don't care how you describe it. I don't care if it's, it's in a religious term or spiritual term or, a, you know, I am a, um, you know, uh, my higher self kind of term, right? You know, it's like, so. To me, it's like when I hear that stuff, that's what I, that's what I hear. It's like there's, a, there's an inner knowing, right? And you start to follow that inner knowing. And that's where it leads you. It's like you just kind of go where it leads you. You don't really have a plan for it, right? It's like, but at the same rate, I didn't have a plan for any of this. I had no freaking clue. What I, I'd, I'd be sitting in this man closet, you know, <laughs> talking to people on Saturday mornings. So, you know, I think, you know, as long as you're, yeah, I guess, uh, open and willing to do that stuff, you know, and I, when you said that too, it's, it reminds me of like how impactful our our bottoms can be, and no, and they're all relative, right? You say, you know, I came from, you know, well-to-do, you know, backgrounds, neighborhoods. Like you grew up in like what Brentwood or something like that. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a place called Carthay Circle. I went Perfect. to school at Brentwood High School, which is yeah. a very affluent neighborhood and school. Yeah. 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 So it, it very much like, and again, and that. How ironic is it's like my vision of 90210, right? Is like how you grew up. And then, um, but you actually were on 90210 at one point too, like in the early days. So, um, so, uh, I think that that is kind of, you know, I think it's all relative, right? You know, and I think that that's what, you know, we all have to remember. And that's where, like, you know, when we talk about, uh, in, in recovery, we talk about seeing the similarities, you know, rather than the differences, right? It's like, you know, it doesn't, like, you know, your journey, to me anyway, it's like, yeah, it's, it's the larger arch. It's the bigger, grander arch. But it's still an arch nonetheless, and it's all relative of, like, what you go through and how you perceive the world, right? So your bottom, really, it may not be as heavy. You were probably still running on some Maroon 5 money, I'm sure, right? And, you know, maybe that kept you afloat for a time. But, you know, I had my own uh, uh, sugar mama. It was my wife. Like, she propped me up and, like, kept me alive, you know? And she kept me from causing too much damage. And I'm sure you had your own people keeping you from causing too much damage. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was just as impactful, right? You know, you're sitting in there. You're like, how the hell do I end up in a Betty Ford clinic, you know, like, out of nowhere? And I'm sure that it, it's shocking, right? And it would, And then... I think what it does for us or what it did for me is it really like I, I never want to forget that moment that I truly hit the bottom, quote unquote, and that I became 
prepared or quote unquote had had the beginning of what I would call the spiritual awakening, right? Like I had that beginning moment of like, okay, like I, there's some, there's got to be something different. And I think, um, you know, what you said at, at, at the end of your book, um, and I don't want to give it away, but um, you had like a, uh, the ending and it says, um, it says, you said something like basically like don't give up to somebody at the end of the book, right? And then you say, um, it, to say it another way, you say we have, we have nothing to lose and everything to gain from asking for help. <clears throat> Sorry. There is, there is peace and freedom and purpose and connectedness and love and joy and serenity waiting for us at the other side of that journey. May you find peace and comfort in the hope of recovery. You deserve it. And I just, you know, one of the things that I'm, the reason I'm still here actually is because there was a woman on Reddit basically that said, hey, like, I know it's hard. I know you have a family. I know you have like shit going on. I know you're getting sober, but you deserve to be happy. And I was just like, me? I deserve to be happy? Like, I didn't think it, you know, it's not possible for me, right? So I love that that's like your ending message. I love that that's like how you're, um, that you really do end on just such a positive note. And to me, that is more valuable and more powerful, more meaningful and more purposeful than anything that you were doing in Maroon 5. <laughs> so I got to be honest. It's like, I think that that's the message for me. It was like such a wonderful perspective to have about like, yeah, you can have it all, buddy. Right. But if you don't have it in here, you, you know, th there's no hope for any of that other stuff, you know, um, because all that is kind of meaningless without, you know, going inward, you know, so very very meaningful so i guess um what is your current flavor of recovery and yes you're a you know, family therapist and you're doing all that stuff how do you personally um engage with recovery today uh well recovery you know obviously is a, a everyday thing in terms of a lifestyle of self-care and a lifestyle of being of service is a big part of it. I, you know, I was doing the sponsoring thing. I was volunteering at a recovery center and I found that to be the most meaningful thing at that point in my recovery was just showing up, you know, uh, listening to people, telling people my story, giving them encouragement, um, articulating ideas and, and, you know, the concepts of recovery and, I realized that was more powerful than anything else I was doing. Obviously the self-care and everything I do for myself, going to meetings uh, was, was helpful, but it was the service aspect that really kept me, kept me moving forward in my recovery. So now that I'm doing it professionally, uh, I spend the majority of my time doing that um, even though it's not necessarily in 12 step meetings, but I do work that into the kind of therapy that I do. Even if I'm working with somebody who's not necessarily an addict, um, I find that these concepts really cross over to a lot of areas of mental health, just um, in terms of a mind, body and spirit approach, a, a holistic approach to treating people. So for me, I mean, but self-care is really just one of those non-negotiables. It's like I can take on a lot of stuff at this point in my life. I'm not working hungover. I'm not doing anything that's going to get in the way of me showing up and doing a gig. So I'm a therapist, uh, a life coach, uh, an author, a speaker, a lot of things. Uh, but at the end of the day, I need my sleep, <laughs> you know, that's non-negotiable. Um, I need a certain amount of time to myself to be, to reflect and do my own thing and not feel like I'm responsible for other human beings. There's a balance between those things. So really finding balance in life is the core of what I consider my self-care. 
Chelsea, have you been holding back on your questions? Well, I'm just like fascinated by like this whole like roller coaster up and down kind of story. But I guess um so working as a a therapist, um, are you are you working with um like people who were um kind of I don't want to say like celebrities or are you dealing with like people like us, like who are just struggling, you know, just your us regular everyday us, us lowly us, people. Us low. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wonder because I feel like you could um you could help both. You know, you've been in um a certain uh lifestyle or um class, if you will, and then you've also it seems like you're a pretty like reasonable regular celebrities they're just like us you know what i mean <laughs> yeah well thank you i i hope that i'm a regular folk <laughs> more than a celebrity <laughs> at this point in my life but i work with everyone absolutely um you know i work at a, a clinic a, a, called the missing peace center for anxiety in agora hills california and that uh, that is an affluent area i won't lie um you know there definitely are some wealthy people there but um, no celebrities that i've met so far there um, but I have private clients as well, and I am opened up to working in any capacity with people of all walks of life. I think my background probably makes it appropriate for me to work with creative people, um, people in music, people in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Carl. <laughs> but but that's it's not limited to that by any stretch. I work with with you know. Hey, have you have you gotten involved with like music cares or anything else like that? Yeah, um, I actually there's a few things in the works, and I I can't really announce it yet. Oh man, my <laughs> one question. <laughs> but uh, there's there's a few things in in that area that uh, we're working on, and I thank you for asking. I, that is an area that I'm going to be working on. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's like uh, another part of the whole story because you could have easily exploded like in like all the others, right? Yeah, and I, and I think that that's tragic to say, right? Because just just think about that statement for a second you could have easily exploded like all the others mm -hmm. and that to me is like you know being a creative by the way i know that we're sensitive i know that we are like you know sometimes extremely empathic i know that we take on a lot i know um you know when you talk about like your obsessive compulsiveness when you talk about uh your anxiety when you talk about your need for control you know and all these other things i'm like i'm like i'm like oh ryan if you only knew you know because uh, that's exactly like for a lot of us you know i uh, me for for a lot of me let me just say uh, speaking for myself i know that creativity allows me to have all those things right it allows me to make all those decisions i can get lost in it and i can be all that and i have the control over my my piece right like what i produce and all these other things that go along with it it's very comforting for me um and and, and so is the eraser sometimes but either way like i um i get all that and so when i think about like you know, uh, it's very unique to be, uh, you know, on this side of the spectrum in terms of that story. So, uh, and that's why I think it's really important that, you know, uh, you know, people like you speak up and say those things and say, hey, yeah, you know, you can change gears. You can go this whole other direction. You can have much greater impact because I think it's much more um, impactful. And I know playing drums, great, wonderful, right? But, you know, to change just one person's trajectory in their life and to help them find a new path when i think about the people that have done that for me like i just go like oh my gosh like i 
I would love to be that person for somebody. You know what I mean? Just because it is so much more meaningful. And you talk about the connectedness and, you know, those types of things with other people. Um, that is like the secret sauce for me. You know, that's like, you know, helping others, like you talk about being sponsoring and, and do well. And you took it a whole nother step further and just went on to be a therapist. I got a question. Does anybody ever like walk into your uh, room and they don't know your past? Like, does anybody just like walk in and they're like, you know, that fucking therapist, Mr. Dusick is an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you, do, you, do you have people like that in your in your circle today? Oh, more often than not, uh, yeah. the people that come in uh, don't know who I am, especially at the clinic. You know, I mean, they come into a clinic, they're in a, a low place in their life, you know, yeah. dealing with their stuff. They get placed with the therapist and they see me and I'm just a guy who hopefully is going to offer some solutions. Sometimes, you know, months in, somebody will walk in and say like, hey, I Googled you. <laughs> you know, like, what are you doing? Google me, you freak. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I, I'm prepared for that kind of thing. It's like, I think I bring myself into the, into what I do. And I, my, my life is an open book literally now. So yeah, yeah, literally, it, it's, yeah. it's fine. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, more often than not, when people come in, I'm just their therapist. That's awesome. And then, uh, you talked about like, what is the matrix thing again? So I, I so what I really enjoyed is you talked about opening doors beyond just like 12 step. You talked about just, you know, uh, uh, incorporating some CBT as well into your life. And so a lot of my path has kind of been similar to I, you know, I actually, I didn't want to go back to AA at all. Like that was like one of the things like, you know, I, I've been pushed into that direction my entire life and couldn't stand it. Like I couldn't stand the people. I tried to get away from those people most of my life and everybody kept turning around saying, no, no, you got to go talk to these drunks. And I'm like, no, those are the problem. That's the, that's, you know, so, um, so I started to discover things like, you know, smart recovery or, uh, or CBT, right. So cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and, and then, uh, I think Chelsea even said at one point, like dialectical, what is it? Dialectic therapy? Oh, DBT. DBT. So, uh, so there's other things that like, you know, are all kind of all encompassing. Uh, can you talk about this, this matrix thing? I mean, I, I don't know what it is necessarily. I just kind of like perused it and I was like, what is that? So uh, what was that in the book? I'm re really curious. Uh, well, when I was leaving the Betty Ford Center, uh, I had been there for two months. I had uh, one month inpatient in the hospital there and then an another month that I was living off campus in a, like a sober living house and going on. So you went to sober living as well? Well, yeah. I mean, it was. I was still at the Betty Ford. I was just living in like a house with like four other guys that were sober off but campus. How did that feel? Um it was just a part of the process. The next step, it was exactly what I needed at that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and then when it felt like it was time for me to go home, um, you know, the people at Betty Ford said, I, we think you're ready to discharge. However, I would not recommend you just going back to your life as it was and expecting, you know, think everything to be great. You need some kind of program in place. So I was at a place in my life where I was like, I'm saying yes to whatever people are offering me in terms of recovery because I tried every other way, my way, mm -hmm. and it didn't work. So uh, before I even went home from the Betty Ford, I enrolled myself in this uh, intensive outpatient program called the Matrix Institute on Addictions. Uh, the Matrix had been around for a while. They kind of innovated the, the CBT model for recovery. Um, 12 Steps is not a part of their program, um, but they encourage it. I mean, it's something they, they would recommend certainly on top of what they're doing but it was much more of a um a cognitive behavioral 
and even um, neurological approach to recovery from addiction. And so I went straight into a four month program there when I got home uh, at a location that's no longer no longer exists. I think the whole company got bought out by Claire, which is another recovery center. Uh, so it's not Claire Matrix, but um, but the Matrix model was basically they described to you in layman's terms the the brain chemistry of addiction, so you understand what's actually happening on a neurological level in your brain when you've become addicted and why it's so hard to quit, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and what happens when you do quit. Because it was so enlightening to me to understand the concept that you have acute withdrawal and then that ends. But a lot of people think, "Oh, I'm done." <laughs> 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 a week and it's over yeah yeah right <laughs> oh, oh wait a second i've been an addict for a decade like my brain chemistry has a little bit of time to catch up with you know everything i've been doing if, to it for that time um so you know knowing that four months in six months in you're going to have these lows where your brain is just kind of going up and down and trying to figure out what's what's up um that was really helpful because i know that's when a lot of people go out you know, mm -hmm. what they don't understand, like your brain is still healing. It's still trying to find its its balance point, um, knowing that that's what was happening. And if I had a really rough day and I was experiencing more anxiety than usual, um, that it, I did, I didn't have to think to myself, oh, this is what sobriety is. This is what I have to deal <laughs> with now forever without a drink. I knew, okay, no, this is not forever. This is just uh, part of the process. And there's going to be good days and bad days. So anyway, that was helpful. And then the CBT approach was basically just the idea of thought stopping or thought replacing, um, identifying triggers, identifying the thoughts that uh, come from those triggers that lead to cravings, uh, and then, of course, lead to use. And once you've gotten to cravings, it's probably too late. So you need to stop that process at the thought before it becomes mm -hmm. a craving. So it was a big process of just reworking um, the way that you think about uh, your relationship to addiction, um, which was empowering. I, I think as a sort of a, a someone who fancies himself as an intellectual person, if, if that sounds snobbish enough, um, I, I needed we. <laughs> <laughs> I needed something that that spoke to me on that level on top of the spiritual element. So I was going to AA meetings also. I mean, that was like sitting sitting my ass in that seat and listening to people talk about their spiritual journey was a big part of my process as well. I needed both things. I needed to work on my mind, on my body, you know, and it was exercising more. I needed mm -hmm. to work on my spirit, a really holistic approach. So it was all of the above for me. Yeah. I, I, you know, in my early days, again, I was reaching for just about anything other than AA, right? Because well, I was, you know, 15 years old. Don't you know that I know everything about the program because I was 15 when I went to treatment, right? But I, you know, I, I know nothing, right? So, but I don't know that. So, but so I really started to look at all these other things. You know, I found like uh, 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 this naked mind is like, you know, uh, so that really helped to talk about like, you know, what goes on in the brain and those types of things. And like one of the things I learned about, um, you know, early on was like, uh, you know, about relapse. Why I kept continuing to to for two years, I tried to quit and. And what it what it was is like you know I get three or five days and I think I'm fine and then I I drink and literally like the brain just kind of snaps right back to where it was but I didn't know any of that stuff and that's even true for like people up to like you know six and eight months that's why that marker is there too up to a year like you're when you drink again it's like your brain just like all the pathways just like bing you know it, it basically just sends that you know message to the brain of like hey, we're back at it boys like <laughs> open the roads so that's why it became such a you know 
uh, important thing for me to start to learn about all those other things. It's almost like, you know, Bill Wilson discovering, you know, the allergy, the body, you know, and, you know, and then again, you know, spiritual solutions. Like for me individually, that's kind of what it was like. I needed to know those other things as a intellectual, <laughs> right? Yeah, I needed to know those things because um, it, it really, I, I process differently, right? So I needed to like, have that understanding before I could have the next understanding. And I feel very grateful for all the people that were very patient with me as I like had to learn those things because a lot of times my brain was just shut to the idea of anything like that. Like, you know, like basically like, you know, and then which brings me to the other thing you talk about in your book is that you started to address some of the deeper issues in terms of your traumas that you really had to get to in order to make it past some of that stuff. I don't want to go too heavy into that, but I do would like, I would like for you to talk about that a little bit just to help other people understand what that means for you. Cause I know what it means for me. I just don't know what it means for you. Yeah. You know, getting sober and finding ways to stay, stay sober is really for me, just the beginning of the process, right? Because what comes up when you don't have your crutch anymore is all the reasons why you were running to that crutch in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. And for me, uh, Certainly the trauma had to do with the performance and the loss of that career, the loss of that identity, and just my confidence being completely destroyed by that whole experience. So that was a very raw thing that I'd been running from for a decade, and I had to really face head on. It was a lot easier to do when I had the kind of support I had in the recovery community to do it. Like I said, telling my story over and over again and kind of working through it uh, was was a sort of a process of narrative therapy for me, you know recreating the narrative of that whole uh, part of my life and turning it into something that became just a part of my journey to where I'm going to be where I am now and where I'm where I'm headed as opposed to this huge thing that just destroyed me and I would never be the same you know so it was really um it was a process where the the work of recovery was therapeutic in and of itself for me in terms of my trauma with that. And I had a, a, lo- a hard time for the longest time referring to it as trauma or thinking of it as trauma because I felt guilty saying that. Um, I, I reserved that word for people that had been in a war zone or that mm-hmm. had had you know, horrible childhood you know, a- abuse and that kind of thing. Um, so calling you know, <laughs> being a rock star and being worn down on tour trauma just sounded wrong to me. I, uh, but that was also part of the... The problem for me was I wasn't able to really reach a place of acceptance of what had actually happened and what it had done to me until I was able to really look at it for what it was and how painful it really was. Mm -hmm. So that process was really a part of the recovery for me. And then going all the way back to, as we were talking earlier, it's like this stuff didn't just start there. Yeah, yeah. This stuff didn't traumatize me out of nowhere. It goes back to issues that I dealt with since I was a kid. And those go back to my parents' traumas and their in their youth, you know, the things that they went through. Um, trauma is intergenerational, you know. So understanding where you come from, why you have the issues you have, um, is an important part of acceptance. And as you know, acceptance is the first step. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I so I started going to uh, you know adult children of alcoholics and uh, so ACA, which is like a you know. Um, so it's just it's kind of a deceptive word because you know adult children of alcoholics thinks it like oh it's just children of alcoholics but it's also like if you go down the book it says you know dysfunctional families right so you know so really 
um, you know, they talk about the generational nature of the disease of alcoholism, right? And so even though you may come from parents who did not drink, you, they can still pass on the traits of alcoholism and that kind of dysfunction. And right. I guess, you know, it's almost interchangeable at that point, you know, alcoholism and dysfunction, right? Uh, so um, I started doing that like about two and a half years ago. And boy, did that like, you know, open uh, the floodgates for me and really helped me to address and really, um, you know, uh, they even like it's great because not like AA, but like in ACA, they have a chapter on finding a therapist, right? Like what to look for. And I am like, and so, and I never considered really therapy because I was always going to do this alone. Like I had always done, you know, I, you know, I'm going to make, I, you know, I'm going to tough it out or whatever. And, uh, uh, and I, I, I had a little bit of fear of going to a therapist too. Right. So I think, you know, once I read that chapter and I, and I identify with everything else in the book. So I'm like, okay, you know what? Like I'm going to start going to therapy. And I did. And I tell you what, those are the things that like change you. They like, you know, just having the ability to go and sit with another person and tell them all that nitty gritty shit. Some days it's just can, you can just free you, you know, can free you completely. So, um, so I, I really appreciate the fact that you started to talk about those things as well in the book and that it becomes like a, you know, a, you know, a completed circle, right? Not just ending at, and I got sober, so yay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you talk about going into exploring some of the deeper things. Mm -hmm. uh, Chelsea, do you have any, you know, final questions for our hostage? <laughs> <laughs> I guess my question would be, um, you know, you today, are there still challenges um, with regard to your recovery or your mental health that you struggle with and you're constantly working on? Because I know for me, like I have OCD, I have panic disorder and those I've, I've made great progress and therapy has been one of my, uh, my, uh, methods for, uh, working through that stuff. But, you know, I'm still, I still have the, um, you know, the invasive thoughts and, and some things that I, I have to actively work on every day. And some days are harder than others. Would you say that, um, you're still working on things yourself and this is going to be like a, a lifelong thing that you're, you're dealing with? Great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm a work in progress, right? We all are. Um, Fortunate for me, the things that were really debilitating for me, uh, I seem to have gotten a grip on to a point where I'm. it's not hindering me from moving forward with my life and doing the things that I want to do. Um, in terms of panic disorder, I definitely had that. Uh, in terms of obviously alcoholism. Somehow I was able to change my relationship with alcohol that I just see it as absolute poison to me now. Like if I think if I see someone drinking a martini, it has it's I might as well like reach out for a, a glass of battery acid. It's just not something that appeals to me at all. So uh, that is I'm very grateful for that. However, the the trauma that I refer to of the experience of everything that happened, the way that I broke down in mind, body and spirit still lives in my body and still lives in my mind in ways that manifest. Uh, the way that it's most noticeable to me has to do with the drums, to be honest with you. When I sit at the drums, I'm carrying a lot of baggage on my shoulders uh, that I didn't used to have before all that. And it really hinders me in terms of my ability to play that the way that I want to sometimes. Um, so I'm still in the process of working through that. I'm still in the process of understanding the effect that had on my nervous system. Those symptoms don't stop with the drums. They come up and there are times when I get nervous and my hands start to shake, you know, even my foot kind of trembles because, you know, I just, 
started having control issues with the pedal. And, and that is, is I've, I've come to understand that's the effect of trauma. It's kind of a, like a PTSD um, symptom where my nervous system just kind of goes into fight or flight sometimes. And I experience these physical symptoms of just wanting to bolt, you know? <laughs> so that comes up. But now what I do when I feel that if it's something that I can work through, I sit with it. Um, the idea of, you know, public speaking and getting up on stage again in any capacity was terrifying at first, but I did it enough in meetings. And then in class, when I went back to school, you know, the first time I, I had to give, you imagine being in your forties now and having to go back to class and live that nightmare, you know, <laughs> I'm giving a, a lecture in front of your class and I have the paper in my hand and it's shaking and, <laughs> and I can't look up and make eye contact with anyone, but I did it. And then I did it. 10 more times. And by the 10th time, it was like, Hey guys, I'm looking at everyone. Yeah. Pointing at them. <laughs> hey, hey now, hey. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to those kind of opportunities, you know, to continue to work through my issues. I, I that's what I did. I try to see them as opportunities now, as opposed to, uh, a terrifying, uh, thing that I to over try to overcome. It's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to do, do something that, um, takes me one step closer to feeling, a really, uh, really whole in my body and in my mind and spirit. Yeah, that's awesome. I feel like, you know, kind of what you've touched on quite a bit is the more that you just uh, do it, you talk about it, you sit with it, the easier it gets the next time. And I think um, that's true for alcoholism too. It's kind of like once you get through your first uh, Thanksgiving or your first Christmas, you know, the next one's not going to be so bad. The, you know, the next Super Bowl won't be so bad. So um, I think that's applicable to just about anything. And um, sounds, I, I can't wait to read your book. I, I am in school right now, so I have no life and <laughs> no time for anything, but I, I'm so excited to read it and um yeah yeah it's a cool story. Well thank you very much. I can't wait for you to read it too. <laughs> <laughs> so uh you've been listening to Ryan Dusick and he has written a book um uh, harder to breathe is, is the title of the book. Uh it is all well, actually the full title is A Memoir of Making Maroon Five, Losing It All and Finding Recovery. It's about what, like three hundred pages or so? Is that what it is? Somewhere on there? Yeah, it's 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 and it's and it's it's a great read. So, um, so uh, you know, I just do want to uh, talk about the the de the dedication a little bit, yeah, because you know we're definitely aligned in our in our dedication. Uh, so Ryan wrote in his book, um, this book is dedicated to the young people of all ages, uh, struggling with mental health challenges, and I just think that that's again. Uh, you, you know, we're 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 in alignment in terms of our mission. I think it's great to have you on because we really we really we really fit together <laughs> to a certain degree. Um, uh, I guess I do want to uh, thank you like so much for for coming on. And we had some technical issues to begin with. Thank you for going through that a little bit. Uh, but really, um, I think your story is uh, um, is going to be impactful for a lot of people. I think you're going to be able to help a lot of people see themselves and then, you know, find their way out of the, you know, the same, you know, fucking quagmire that we've all been through. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm really, uh, um, grateful actually to have had the opportunity to meet you, to, to read your book, to like, you know, really, you know, just get to know you a little bit on this beautiful Saturday morning. Um, 
so with that said, would you, is there anything you'd like to, to say imparting to the, to the ex-party people who are out there struggling? Any, any wise words from Ryan Dusick? Well, you know, there's always hope, even if you, you can't see it right now, you know. Um, I'm a testament to that, you know. I, I really was at a place where um, I didn't see a way back or out or anything. Um, and here I am today, you know, and, and doing things I couldn't have possibly imagined I would be doing. Um, so give yourself a chance. You deserve it. There you go. You deserve it. So, um, couple, uh, so we have some housekeeping. 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 Oh, <laughs> oh Carl. Um, so we have uh, uh, SOS meetings, which is uh, the official meeting of Silverpod. Uh, we just uh, we got hit up by uh, V from, uh, oh gosh, I, I forget where she's at. Pico Rivera. I think she's in Pico Rivera. So she has a meeting that she started, and she wanted to, uh, you know, have us start helping to promote it. And we said, no, we'll do better than that. We will be your, uh, you, you will be the uh, official meeting of Silverpod. Uh, so, um, so that's at 4 p.m. and you can go to silverpod.com, silverpod.com, uh, to find out all the Zoom information there. And I went last Saturday and it was freaking awesome. V like facilitates it really well. She like, if people come in late, she's like getting them to like, you know, check in before they share and getting them comfortable. I mean, I was like totally impressed. I think, first of all, I thought anybody who listens to us and starts a meeting, it's going to be just a shit show, but it wasn't. It was actually, it was, it was really well done and well put together. You know, people from around SoCal are showing up, which is cool. But I was, I hope that you would know, get more, uh, you know, people around the U.S. to show up. And of course, our, our, our two people who listen in Australia. So uh, please, by all means, uh, go to the website. Go to, you'll find like a little red uh, square there. It says SOS meetings uh, with our logo in the center of the O, and uh, just follow the instructions from there. Um, and then we had some questions that I guess that we answered from last week, but I don't, I don't have them up right now, so we're not going to do those. But maybe we'll do them next week when we go back to living sober. And uh, Chelsea, can you can you? I like it better when you talk about Phil's body. Can you talk about Phil's body? For bang and bod, Phil. Bang he <laughs> he's got a bang and bod. I mean, yeah, that's why we call him Bang and Bod Phil. <laughs> um, he is on Sober Bod Live, um, doing his weekly classes beginners exercise class for free um i think you just go to facebook.com slash groups slash sober pod or something sober pod slash groups we don't know either way go there (laughs) find us on facebook like us go to sober pod live and then become a member of that group and then you can have access to all that stuff Uh, and then don't forget we are part of the friends in recovery enterprises which is basically friends in recovery uh which is like uh, the fire network so if you want to be a part of the uh, fire network and you are a content creator in sobriety uh by all means we want to include you on our stuff we want to because you know we're just getting people together so that we can all kind of participate uh with one another maybe either share resources or uh you know go on each other's shows or you know whatever it may be we want to help spread your content does that sound bad we want, <laughs> <laughs> we want to spread your content we, we want to spread you <laughs> no never mind all right so thank you again uh ryan for uh, taking this time on a saturday morning i know you're you know you're you're busy dude you got a i'm sure you have a lot going on in your life but thank you again for taking the time you know for being with us um and if there's anything that you ever need from us feel free to call (laughs) thank you very much i appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys cool and and then so um so at the end we usually say like i say something like uh, you know, stay active, stay sober. See ya. 
uh, Chelsea says deuces and then what would Ryan say uh, one day at a time I don't know <laughs> fair enough yeah, it works <laughs> yeah, alright all right, see you guys <laughs>